0: All right, good morning, everybody. Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talking, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person Such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. Dear Lord in heaven, I just want to thank you, Father for this church and this church family, for all that you've brought here today, those that are hurting, those that need you, those, those that love you, Father. Thank you for being present, and I pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds would just be open to your word through today's teaching. Please, Father, be with us. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.
1: I just want to say real fast that it has been an honor uh, partnering with Andrew preaching this series. And um, super grateful for the, pap- the pastor and training program we he- have here at Zion. And uh, it truly has been an honor just bringing the word to you guys throughout this series. And I'm grateful for Andrew. He's a great, great preacher. And so if today is your first time here. Make sure you come back. And uh, because he truly knows the Lord and loves the Lord. <clears throat> uh, but so, thank you so much, church, for being gracious towards me and joining with me on this, uh, this journey. I'm excited for today. How many of you remember The Truman Show starring Jim Carrey? Do you guys remember that? All of you do, good. It was a 1998 classic, and Jim Carrey plays the character Truman Burbank. He lives his whole life scripted and filmed. He is the star of a hit show but has no idea. So if you haven't seen it, It's really, really good. Um, But after some small mistakes with the writers of the TV show, Truman sees the mistakes and he starts wondering what is going on. And he wakes up after a series of events to realize that he's not living in a real town. He doesn't have a real job and his life has been controlled by a television writer. And after the realization, Truman decides to, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, exit the stage, and live a real life away from the cameras. And as we continue through our series, Ephesians, A New Humanity, Paul has taken us through the cosmic perspective and is now asking us to realize the greater reality around us, to walk worthy of our calling as the new humanity. He's inviting us into knowing how the greater reality how to live it out in light of the cosmic perspective and make changes to the way we ought to live and ought not to live. So the past two previous weeks, Andrew showed us how the new humanity should live. We should be humble, gentle, um, and this is the third movement in walking worthy of our calling of things not to do, starting with our sexuality. So Ephesians 5:3, But among you, there must not even be a hint, a sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And I'm going to be honest with you, church, that this is a difficult topic to preach on, not exactly uh, our culture's favorite topic in the church. And I'm aware of the tension in some of you and the tension of our cultural moment, but Paul thinks it's important, Paul teaches that it's important for us to listen closely to this. And so I bring this word to you today. So draw into the teaching of of Paul. Draw into what he's saying. The word for sexual immorality is pornea. Remember in week one, we talked about in Ephesus. Uh, In Ephesus and really all over the ancient world, there were temples of worship where you would meet with a priestess. Um, to worship the gods of fertility by engaging in sexual behavior. Uh, prostitution wasn't only legal, but it was common, and it wasn't looked down on. The sexual revolution in the 70s wasn't really revolutionary at all, but a regression to the ways of ancient Ephesus, Corinth, and et cetera. And if the progressives in our society saw the sexual practices in those days, they would see they really aren't progressive at all, but are taking part in something very ancient. Paul says, in your church, being the new humanity in light of the cosmic perspective, there shouldn't even be a hint of this. There shouldn't be hints of this lifestyle. Now, most of us today are not going to temples to worship a goddess of fertility, and although we don't encounter the same situations as the community in ancient Ephesus, we do encounter similar temptations whereas the dominant culture view of sexuality is constantly trying to form us into its image, forming us out of the way of God's image. It is in a sense a script that has been written for us to entice us, to draw us in. We see Artemis is still worshiped and proclaimed in our movies, podcasts, websites, social media, and by our favorite politicians. The temple of Artemis has changed its structure but its practice has remained. The Ways of Artemis is alive and well within our culture, and though the internet, and through the internet, it has become far more secret and accessible. Now, we won't do a deep dive of this because Andrew taught a whole series, God and Sex. So if you want certain questions answered, dive deep into certain topics, Uh, we have that on the podcast. You can go back and listen. Uh, but we're not going to gloss over this either. Lynn Kohicks says this, The first noun, sexual immorality, porneia, expresses disdain for another as an object of desire and confuses sexual freedom with power over another. It refers to sexual sins such as adultery, sexual immorality, and prostitution. Jesus uses the term when speaking about marital infidelity, and Paul uses it to describe the sort of sexual sin at which even pagans balk. The second term, impurity, speaks to more uncleanness, which includes sexual impurity. Paul uses this noun in Ephesians 4.19 when describing the futile thoughts of Gentiles who separate themselves from life with God. So Paul says it must not be among us. We should have a higher sexual ethic. It is not uncommon in gatherings like ours where we become comfortable with Graphic content in our films, we have engaged and become addicted to pornography, and seeing our sexuality as getting our desires met rather than leading us to love one another. Now, since the 70s, again, the progressive stand on this is that there are two consenting adults, it is okay. But in the light of the cosmic perspective from the first three chapters, Paul shows us that we have entirely different value for other humans than the rest of the world, and this should shape our sex ethics. Like Kant said, uh, Immanuel Kant from the Enlightenment, he said, we should not use others to get what we want. For some reason, in today's day and age, the phrase of two consenting adults is saying, well, if we both want to use each other for our own pleasure, then it is okay. You use me, and I will use you. Paul says this should not be the case. And takes a step further in saying not even a hint of it should be found among you because humans deserve so much more value than being a means to our own sexual end and whether it is only in our thoughts only in what we look at or if someone agrees to it with us we know humans deserve to be treated better they deserve value and we also know from the Me Too movement, the scandals of corporations across the world that even when someone says yes, they do not always mean yes. So I wanna be gentle with this. There are some of you who have been treated less than human. This would not be your sin, but a sin done to you. Paul shares with you this, you did not deserve it. You have so much value and you still do Oftentimes, the weight of carrying this can bring feelings of unworthiness, anxiety, anxiety, major guilt, depression. And the message I have for you today is Jesus wants to heal you from this. There is no judgment from Jesus or the church towards you. You are worthy of being loved. You can still be loved. And you are loved. And know that God does not blame you or is upset with you for that. And God wants to take that pain and that trauma away. He wants to heal you of the pain from memories, your anxiety, your depression, your self-hatred, the triggers that cause you to progress. He wants to reveal to you the value of who you already are. The church must be a safe place from abuse, safe from being viewed only for what one can offer, safe from being viewed as a project, safe from judgment and ridicule, and safe from harm. Because we are a new humanity, we see the value in each person as made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. We see sex as far greater than a transaction that is devaluing to each person. We find safety in the church because of a higher sex ethic. Not even a hint of this mindset, attitude, or practice of sex should be found in the church. Sex today is portrayed as innocent as eating too much food, having our appetite met, but Paul shares with us us today it is so much more. It is the covenant bond and marriage that God brings together. It is a gift to give, not a demand to meet. The next thing Paul moves on to is our motives. We move on to Greed. Greed is the desire for ourselves to have more. It is a motive that also, de- that also demands to be met. It is the root of porneia. We find ourselves wanting more satisfaction, more recognition, more affirmation. And so the greed in our hearts and our minds leads us to engaging and taking. Like page one of the Bible, Adam and Eve saw, then they took And I think of the famous pop song, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. There are many ways that we can be greedy. Lynn Kohick says this, we might note that greed shares with idolatry, a love of gold or silver. The greedy and the idolater both frequented pagan temples, for the temples also served as banks. Snodgrass says, the desire to have more motivates both sexual sin and all other sins. In fact, it has been described as seeking to get more out of life than God put into it. Even though God has packed the life full of good things, most of us are never satisfied. When desire for more takes over, especially with sexual relations, it distorts the minds, debilitates us, disrupts life, and finally becomes our master. We say someone is lovesick for good reason. Greed makes us sick. Greed can also take control of our minds and distort us in the desires for possessions. It pushes us to acquire more money and resources. We never have enough. If lying is the enabler of sin, greed is its origin. Now, you may be um, someone who is greedy with your money, greedy with your business, greedy with your time, greedy with your family, relationships, sex, or more. Greed is not only accepted in our culture today, but celebrated with famous quotes of like, treat yourself, you deserve it, and you only live, much, uh, you only live once, take as much as you can. <laughs> we see what greed does to the multimillionaires feasting on their yachts with big corporations as their employees have a hard time paying medical bills. Can we see it in our own lives? Can we see those we have forgotten around us? Paul says, this should not be the case. We see in our culture today that we use others to get more for ourselves. For instance, have you ever met someone who wanted to meet you, but not because they cared about you, but because they wanted something from you? They devalued you. They used you. They were greedy for something. And God forbid that it is said about one of us. It shouldn't be something that is in the culture of the church or in our lives, We are greedy for recognition, so we take advantage of any platform we can find. We are greedy for more money, so we take advantage of our employees or ourselves by overworking. We are greedy for someone's body, so we go to the internet. We want something, and greed drives us to get it at any cost. Greed is proof that sin does not satisfy. It only creates a stronger desire. Greed says, I did this, and now I need more. I want this, and I need it now. Lynn Kohick, again, the church must be known as a holy people by a wider society, not as a holier-than-thou and arrogant, but pious, moral, and generous. This is why we have our uh, generosity liturgy. We are a new humanity church, and we see the value of each person made in the Imago day, made in the image of God. So we do not take for ourselves to have more when those around us have less. Greed is also a sort of pride that makes us believe we have earned it or deserved it. And not only are we holding back from giving to others, but we also steal what is not ours, what we do not deserve. Paul says it is improper for the new humanity because that is not how people should be treated. So church, what are our motives? What are we allowing to drive us? Ephesians 5.4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul goes from what we do and what motivates us to then how we speak of others and of what is in our lives what culture we are creating with our words. Obs- obscenity is the Greek word, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced, escrates. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, foolish talk, moralagia, coarse joking, eutropilia. <laughs> totally brutal, those three words. But uh, these are words describing, speaking of things that are embarrassing to you or the listener which can include making fun of someone, speaking with no control as if you were drunk blabbering with no wisdom, and speaking with sexual innuendos or making light of sexual immorality. Snodgrass says, coarse joking suggests something easily turned, a double entendre, speech innocuous in itself, but turned to have indecent intent. Paul says, as people in the new, new humanity, we are in control of our actions, our desires, and our tongues. The tongue is a dangerous weapon to let loose. In today's society, people rant on social media and lose their jobs, friends, dignity, and more. Oftentimes, you will hear, I'm just joking. Don't be so sensitive. One in the previous week, Andrew talked about in Ephesians 4:29. Paul says, only talk if it's going to build someone up, that it would be graceful for others to hear and there would not be corruption in your words. We can lose control of our tongue so quickly that we tear someone down in the process. Even in the church, people have said offensive things with no wisdom, no restraint, and no gentleness. There has been a lack of control over the tongue and we have seen the consequences. No control over it all can lead to destruction. James 3.5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Paul is go, going over our speech because it will affect your day to day. There is the cliche, words create worlds. Have you heard it? Paul says, and if you have any understanding of the greater reality around you, why would you talk like a fool? Ben Witherington says, it refers not to speech that lacks intelligence or education, but speech that lacks wisdom or a godly perspective on life. Kohit goes on to describe that poet writers used to excuse their vocal talk through poetry and that it was necessary for the art. Arguing that what one says in the art is far from the reality of who they are. Paul says, what you speak is a part of who you are. Jesus' words are this in Matthew 12, 34. You brutal vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When we are constantly putting people down, joking about sinful behavior what is it revealing in our own hearts lynn kohick says and she's great doctor in texas studies theology and all kinds of other stuff she's incredible paul knows that words do things as when god spoke to and creation came into being jesus declared that words matter for they reflect the heart therefore Paul not only addresses sexual immorality and greed, but he also challenges improper, vulgar speech as antithetical to Christian witness. Paul warns the Ephesians that vile speech is unfitting for those in the family of God. He asserts that vulgar, tasteless, and coarse comments must be banished from the believer's community. None of these actions and conversations represent God and his gospel. In fact, They make a mockery of it. So we see that Paul is trying to show the believers here that their speech is important and more important than we realize. We can often excuse and make light of what we say because, well, I'm not doing it, I'm just saying it. The greater reality is that our words matter. They can affect our minds and they can affect the people we speak them to. Michael Gorman says, the seriousness of this matter is presented next verse, presumably on the assumption that speech itself is an act that puts the speaker and doer at risk. Snodgrass says, this passage is not, however, a rejection of humor, which can be engaging, creative, and enjoyable. Rather, it is rejection of the talk of fools, those who are morally and spiritually perverse and of humor as a way to play with sin. Paul points out that we shouldn't put people down with our humor. We should we shouldn't dehumanize someone with our humor. We shouldn't make light of evil acts. We should rather be a people speaking with thanksgiving. Thankful for those around us and letting them know. Thankful for what God has been given us and praising him for it. Thankful for pleasure. How might we change our mindsets if our speech is focused on how blessed we are rather than the perverse things that dehumanize others. Oftentimes we can joke about something and it reveals what we're thinking about. Sometimes dark uh, jokes or joking about something we want to do but won't do. This then puts our minds on things that breed discontentment, puts our minds on things that are not right We are dipping our toes in the water to to prepare the jump with our humor. We first are discontent, we make light of doing wrong, and eventually we don't think it's so wrong anymore. We laughed about it, so let's do it. Paul says, stay away from foolish blabbering. Realize that what you say has an effect to it posture ourselves rather in a place of gratitude giving thanks is a form of worship and it bears it helps us become more content anyway and uh, you can use this word worship and thanksgiving here in eugene peterson's quote interchangeably but he says worship does not satisfy our hunger for god but it does wet our appetite our need for god is not taken care of by engaging in worship but it deepens Snodgrass says, Thanksgiving is the antidote for sin, for it is difficult to both give thanks and sin at the same time. Also, I think about the social aspect of it. When looking at the church in today's society, we are known for some pretty awful things that we've said across denominations. What if Zion City Church became known for always being grateful? What if our posture was a place of gratitude. So Paul continues with leading to a warning that if you do these things, here is your warning. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So, Paul reveals what all of this truly is. It's worshiping things over God. At its root, it's not just desires that become out of check. But we now worship sex, ourselves, instead of God. Our speech is a sign and indicator that our hearts are dark. Paul, uh, ben Witherington says this about Paul. Paul adds that insatiableness, rap- rapaciousness, and excessive desire to have or to obtain is a form of idolatry. Anything or anyone desires or loves more than God becomes an idol. It's easy to make an excuse. It's easy to stick up for what we truly love. I mean, we we may not go to the temples like the Ephesians could have, but we worship our own idols. The gods of sex, greed, and platform have left us sick, desperate, and choking for air. These are our gods. Have they failed you? Paul goes on to say that there will be no inheritance for those who are like this. You can be sure of it. So what does that mean? The plans that God has for you in this life to be a part of the new humanity and conquering the powers, well everything we talked about before, and, um, and more can be altered by these acts that we commit. You can miss out on the kingdom here and now and in the age to come. Peter O'Brien says the apostle is not asserting that the believer who ever falls into these sins is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Rather, what is thought of here is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. Lynn Coeck says in this verse he focuses on individuals who chose these sins, while in 5:3 he focused on the actions. Paul casts a wide net in describing sexual sins, knowing that such sins often include violence and abuse of power. The actions are insupportable, and those who do such actions will not share in God's inheritance. So, is this verse saying that we can lose our salvation in Jesus? Short answer, no. But rather, Paul is asking if you know what side you're on. Does the kingdom of God matter to you? Do you want to be a part of it? Then don't let this run your life. Remember, salvation is a free gift, but it comes with a responsibility. And if these things don't matter to you, then maybe this is the revelation in your own heart right now of what side you land on. This is the time to self-evaluate. Who do I really worship? What do I really believe? Since the kingdom is both here and on the way, what would it look like to miss out on the reality of the kingdom today by engaging in, rea- in idolatry? Am I engaging in acts that keep me from experiencing, living in, and seeing the God, the kingdom of God around me today? And if these things are more important to me now, will I even be included in the coming kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom? Lynn Kohick says, the semantic range of the term inheritance includes both the present actuality and a future experience. If we believe we are citizens in the kingdom of God and a part of the new humanity, then let us take on the responsibility in that. Sexual sin and greed harm others. People are made in the image of God. Paul said earlier, we need to be humble and gentle so we don't become greedy which is a form of pride thinking you deserve something and forcing anyone to give it to you. What is the reality about ourselves, church? God takes this seriously because he made us in the image of God. On the first page of Genesis we learn this. Each person has value. And God says, in my kingdom, people are not dehumanized. What kind of actions are we excusing? What kind of things have we been saying, this is okay? When God says, in my kingdom, people are not dehumanized. Paul goes on to say, don't let anyone deceive you. Because from what we know, the church wasn't engaging in these things, but people were telling them from the outside, oh, that doesn't matter, it's okay. When Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you, he is referring to Genesis 3, the snake coming into the church like the snake came into the garden. Adam and Eve saw, they took. In our society today, more than ever, the church's sex ethics are being challenged and mocked. Church sex, church, (laughs) sex is complicated today more than ever. And I know that. And we have new, new categories. And again, go back to Andrew's series, but do you have that tightness in your chest as we talk about this? Maybe you're thinking about someone you know. Maybe you're thinking about yourself. Paul says to us, do not be deceived. Don't let the snake in. Don't let the ruler of the air in. Why is sexual integrity to the new humanity important? Where does each road lead? One leads to people being enslaved, sold, abused, traded, and remembered only by the experience that they can offer and not their name. If you don't believe me, go to the dating apps. Do you see how we can be tricked and deceived? Following Jesus, we obey what he says and see the world as he does because we know that we can be manipulated. We don't continue seeing and taking just like Adam and Eve. Like Truman in the Truman Show, living our whole lives believing one thing and then realizing it was all a lie is what Paul is asking us to wake up to. The snake wants to deceive us. And when we listen to the snake and our own gods rather than Jesus, it brings destruction. The other road leads to valuing valuing each other, giving to each other, You may think, what about the scandals from churches? How is that any better? And you're right, it isn't better. It's painful to see pastors that I have looked up to do terrible things in secret. But that should be a warning all the more to us that knowing the right things is not enough to keep us from being deceived and to keep us from being greedy. But rather, it is, a com- it is a continual submission to the way of Jesus. Otherwise, we experience the wrath of God. And this is the second time that Paul has brought up, brought up the wrath of God in Ephesians. Uh, but this time, Paul doesn't use it as a, an exclaimer, but more so as a warning to the church. These things bring God's wrath. Again, the wrath of God is the consequences of our own actions without God's intervention. I talked about this a few weeks ago, Romans 1. God's wrath is is people sinned, and God said, okay, I'll let you have the consequences of the sin. It's like the child being like, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. And the only thing that's going to get the child to learn is if they finally touch the stove, and they're like, oh, that really hurts, I shouldn't have done that. That would be the parent's wrath on the child. Not a form of abuse, not lightning strikes from heaven, not burning up in flames as soon as you walk in the church right but god's wrath is saying your will be done rather than his own will lynn kohick says God's wrath reflects his concern against idolatry and his desire for relationship with a holy people called into fellowship with him the wrath of god was the counterpoint to his love his response to that which is unlovely and unloving nt wright says God's wrath is built into creation itself. There are certain ways of behaving which are so out of line with the way that God made the worlds, and humans in particular, that they bring their own nemesis. Sexual misbehavior comes into this category. This is something we can experience, church. It is the consequences of our own sin, the wrath of God, Or we let go of God's good plan, and eventually, God lets us go into our own destructive plan. How sad would it be if our greed got us what we wanted? Sexual immorality, greed, treating others as a means to our end, using humor to minimize our sin, using humor humor to minimize someone's value, these things bring the wrath of God. And this should show you how much God values us, that when we devalue each other, he takes it as a serious offense. So right now, God is inviting us to see sin as he does. It brings separation between us and God. To see other human beings with value as he does is the alternative. But repentance is required. In the new humanity, this is our theology that we let it shape the way we live. We don't do these things. We don't mistreat people like this. We don't make light of evil in this world. We don't even partner with those who do because the consequences are far worse than the gratification that only lasts a short bit. Paul mentions partnering. What does he mean by partnering with them? He explains himself in um, the next verses, starting in 8. For you were once darkness, becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says we weren't just in darkness, we were darkness. We were living in, walking in, and creating darkness around us. In the ways of this world, there is darkness where people misuse each other sexually for self-interest, where people are greedy and hungry for satisfying every desire they have, where situations in people's lives are doled down to a joke. But now, we are the light in the Lord. And in the light, we see the value of each person as He does. We respect them in ourselves. We give rather than take. We serve rather than enslave. We encourage each other and are thankful for what we have rather than exploit, joke, and corrupt things with our language. And this is interesting because Jesus is titled the light of the world. And Paul says that you and I are the light in the Lord. Paul is once again showing you your value, telling you your identity like he's been doing this entire book And he is reminding us of what he has been reminding us this entire letter. You are the light of God in the world. You are here to expose the darkness, to shine your light. This is who you already are in Christ. This is not something you have to work towards, but this is a responsibility that God has given you. Salvation. The new humanity. So you... And I, let us be in Christ. I say this to those who have been abused in the dark. You are the light of Christ. Expose the darkness. I say this to the one who doesn't feel good enough, smart enough, young enough, old enough. You are the light of Christ. Expose the darkness. Michael J. Gorman says, believers are to walk as what they are, children of light doing what is good, seeking the Lord's will. And we must take that responsibility seriously. I had a few people ask me um, in week one when I said that we don't engage in the culture wars. We don't take part in that. We stay a non-anxious presence while others are anxious. And they said, well, when do we stand up for things that are wrong? In these moments as we shine our light with our good deeds. And Paul's going to go into that next. Um, Snodgrass says this, Christians are the light in the Lord. Once again, this is a question of identity and the geography that determines identity. Christ, in whom we live, determines our identity. From such a high understanding comes a high morality. Paul continues the idea, don't partner with them and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Do not partner with them in deeds of darkness. Do not support, indulge, or celebrate in it. A lot of people have taken these verses to start like little clans outside of town and try not to speak to anyone who isn't a Christian ever unless they're you know preaching at them and judging them. They judge and they have the holier than thou mindset. That is not at all what Paul is referring to here. And I can think of people with sexual immorality in their life um, What he's more referring to is, have these people come to mind. When he says, do not partner with them, don't partner with them in politics, don't partner with them by paying for their content, don't partner with them in following in their lead. Psalm 1 comes to mind, do not walk in the way of the sinner or sit at their table. It's not saying, don't take the same highway as sinners and don't eat with them, but rather it is saying, do not follow down the path of sexual immorality, greed, and foolish talk and do not eat like no one else is hungry. Snodgrass says, far too often when we think of separation, we think of a geographical distance rather than distinction in lifestyle. Separation may indeed be the wrong word. It implies distance, but what the text seeks is distinction. Paul had written in the previous letter to the church in Corinth not to associate with people guilty of sexual and other sins. The Corinthians thought he was talking about immoral non-Christians, but Paul pointed out that he meant the immoral who claim to be Christians. Jesus is similar. His biggest conflict was with the religious leaders, but he willingly associated with those considered immoral. We often do the reverse. We tolerate inappropriate Christian lifestyle within the church and separate from the non Christian. And we cannot share the gospel if we separate from unbelievers. The light is to shine in the darkness, and then exposing, like in verse 11 and 13, presupposes context contact with non-Christians. We separate from sin, not from people. And if we were judgmental, we would be missing the whole point of this text of what Paul is saying, that we should be valuing people made in the image of God. And I think of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. The Pharisees were ready to kill her. They throw her before Jesus and they say, what is your judgment on her? And after Jesus writes something in the sand, the Pharisees walk away, and then Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus says, no one is here to bring judgment on you for what you did, and neither will I. We don't come with our heads held high as if we haven't done the same things ourselves, but rather, we point out the darkness. We shine our light with our good works. Lynn Kohick says, Paul does not ask that believers censor um, either other believers or non-believers. Instead, the focus is on denouncing unfruitful deeds. Now, verse 9 and 11, Paul says that the light has fruit and darkness has fruitful deeds. Notice the metaphor. Fruit equals life and light. No fruit equals death and darkness. The stuff that happens in darkness isn't even worth repeating. It is shameful just to mention, because it brings death. Again, noticing that speaking of things is speaking of things in an ill manner is causes death to come out of our mouths. What does talking about our own sin do to us? Do we view it as the way Paul does, saying not even to mention it? Or would we joke about our sin? Do we take it seriously? What if we allow Jesus' vision of what is good to shape our affection and desires, and we become more aware and tender towards the things that Jesus says are evil? This is some heavy stuff, church. Are you with me? We're we doing good? Verse 13: everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Paul says, when you are a light and you shine your light on the darkness, you have the ability to illuminate those around you. Christ has illuminated us and we have become light in Christ. And when we do our good deeds, this is the time to stand up. This is the time to advocate. This is the time to, to stand up for humanity. We step away from the darkness and we point it out that is darkness and we do our good deeds and we bring good the lord brings good fruit in our life and we say this is light you wake up and you start noticing in light of jesus's perspective in the cosmic perspective you're like oh there's a reason why sexual ethics matter to the church it's not that the scriptures are judgmental or old-fashioned but rather they teach us that every person has value and i should treat them that way, especially sexually. Oh, and now I see that there's deceptive narratives everywhere in our culture, and it's primarily related to sex and indulging in horrific jokes. I get it now. I see the light exposing the darkness. Like, just go out in your week, the advertisements up to Albuquerque, the TV that you watch, the ads that you see on Hulu, Netflix, all of it. Wake up. See that you are the light of Christ. And that these things bring separation from God. And they bring separate they, they separate me from the plan that He has for me, and they have their own destructive plan. I don't want to live as if I am dead. I am alive, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Paul warns the church that you can experience the wrath of God. And the truth is, churches, that we've seen it happen to churches in our day and age. Zion, listen closely. There comes a point in time when we realize our faith isn't a Sunday morning event, but a way of life. There are greater things for us to wake up to. The people around us are more than sex objects to please us, including our spouses. The greed in our heart reveals our idolatry. The joking we participate in minimizes things that cause destruction, and the world is watching us and we have, the opportunity, we have the opportunity to enlighten situations. But if we're honest, we join in on the darkness. We have the opportunity for a posture of gratitude rather than the latter. So let me ask you this. Do you see the fruit of light, goodness, justice, and truth in your life? Do you see that you aren't worthless You are the light of God. How are you sharing it? Or have you been lured into serving the old gods in the dark? Is today your wake-up call? Have you been deceived like Truman in the Truman Show, thinking that everything's revolving for you around you, and you start noticing, oh, why is that happening? Oh. Why are they making light of that situation? Oh, am I being selfish, greedy, prideful? Am I worshiping myself? And in no way, church, am I coming at this judging you all. Working on this sermon was heavy, let me just tell you that. Um, as I was reading that the darkness was being exposed from my own perception guys the enemy is, is trying to deceive us and Paul is saying wake up he ends with a hymn and um, we don't know where it comes from But we know that the people knew it, and it was most likely um, a hymn that they constantly sung together. So I speak it to you guys, reminding you of your value, reminding you of the Great Commission, reminding you that God loves you and trusts you with his mission of restoring the world. Have we been deceived? So let's meditate on these words as I read it. And then we're going to have a time of response. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you wake up sleeper rise from the dead
0: and christ will shine on